0: Thank you for listening to Franklin City Church's Sermon Podcast. For more information on Franklin City Church, please check us out at www.franklincitychurch.com. Well, good morning, church. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2 is where we will be this morning. And as you are turning there, I want to share with you a little bit about the history of coffee. The history of coffee. And even as I say coffee, I realize many of you are now starting to long for a nice hot cup of coffee with all the good smells and aromas. And so if I've lost your attention already, then I apologize. Please go back later this week and re-listen to the sermon with a nice hot cup of coffee by your side. But uh, let me this morning, as we intro into our sermon, let me share with you a little bit about the history of coffee. Uh, Now no one knows for sure how coffee was first discovered, uh, but the most popular legend is that in the 6th century, it was discovered by a goat herder in Ethiopia. A goat herder in Ethiopia. And so the legend goes that the goat herder noticed that his goats were eating from this strange plant that he hadn't noticed before. And anytime these goats were eating these berries or leaves from this certain plant, they, they all of a sudden had all this energy. Uh, the, the, sheep, the, the goats didn't want to sleep at night. They were just running around full of energy. And the goat herder was like, What is going on with these goats? He would watch them and see all that they're full of energy, not knowing uh, Uh, what to do or how to handle these goats that that were just full of energy. So he tells some local monks then at a monastery, and the monks look into it a little bit more. They actually take the seeds from this plant, and they learn how to kind of roast and grind, and, and they mix some water with it, and they make a drink for the monastery that then they notice helps them stay alert for long hours of prayer. And so from there, then, word spread throughout the area about this new plant that that brought energy and and it helped people keep focus. And they tried to just keep it in the region, but eventually then some Dutch traders stole it and they took it to Europe. And then it spread to the Americas and the New World. And now, thanks to some well-caffeinated goats, uh, coffee is everywhere, right? Thanks to some well-caffeinated goats, now you have to stand in a long line and listen to someone Order a triple grande, half sweet, non fat, skinny caramel macchiato with no whip, extra hot. All thanks to some goats who ate some plants, okay? All right. But then something happened in 1998, okay? Coffee has been being made for a long time. Something happened in 1998. A new company called Keurig developed a new system for making coffee. And it was initially invented to solve the office problem, you know, where you have this big pot of coffee that just sits there all day and becomes bitter and stale and really nasty. Keurig wanted to solve that problem, and so it developed a system to just make a single cup of coffee. And this morning, we are going to look at a text that can initially seem a little confusing because Jesus uses a couple of parables to answer a question. I mean, you can initially read this text that Devin just read and be like, what in the world is going on here? I mean, unshrunk cloth, wineskins, is this passage about fasting? Is it about weddings? What in the world is going on in this text? But I wanted to share the history of coffee with you this morning, because in this text we are once again going to see a conflict arise between Jesus and the religious leaders of that day. And these conflicts happen... Because when Jesus showed up, how he lived and what he taught did not fit into their religious system. What they couldn't see, and what we are going to help God, ask God to help us see this morning, we're about to pray, is that Jesus by no means is throwing out the Old Testament. He's by no means discrediting or disregarding how God spoke to his people in the New Testament and through the law and through Moses and through the prophets, But to use our illustration, he's not telling them to stop making coffee. He's not disregarding the law. He's showing them that he came to fulfill the law. And the fulfillment of the law is way better than this system they have put into place. Jesus shows us that his way of fulfilling the law and making us righteous righteous was way better than the religious system that they had put into place. Jesus is like, your system you have here, it looks okay. It sort of looks like you're making coffee. It sort of looks like you're following the law. But the new covenant is better. I'm talking like French press, right? You know, pour over. There are better ways to do this. And so the Pharisees were upset with Jesus because he didn't fit into their system. They didn't know how to handle him. But we will see that the gospel of Jesus is way better than we could have ever hoped for or imagined. Jesus fulfills a law we failed to keep. He welcomes us into a kingdom we don't deserve. He clothes us with his righteousness that we did not obtain. And Jesus creates in us hearts that can now receive and believe this unbelievably good news. So let's pray, and then we will jump into our text. I believe every pastor uh, should be allowed at least five bad illustrations. If that's one of them you wanna count, that's fine. We can count that as one of the five, all right? Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning and we are thankful that we can know you, that you have made yourself known. God, we thank you for coming to earth fulfilling the law for dying for us for saving us for showing us your grace God we thank you for your word and we ask that as we read it and preach it and and meditate on it God that it would change our hearts that as we know you more that you would stir in us hearts that that love you more help us embrace this good news this grace that you offer and may it all be for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, well, if you're in there, Mark chapter 2, we're gonna start in verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? So John the Baptist's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And fasting was a good thing to do. There's nothing wrong with fasting. But the law in the Old Testament only really required one fast a year. And that was on the Day of Atonement. But then we do see in the Old Testament that other fasts were were included that people partook in. And usually when people were fasting, it was a season of, of, of repentance or it was a season of mourning or grieving. Or there are times that people want to devote themselves to prayer. And so they will also fast as well. And the Pharisees then took this idea of fasting and developed a system where then they fasted twice a week. They fasted on Mondays and Thursdays. The Pharisees said, hey, we're not just going to fast one day a year. We're going to fast twice a week. And while there's nothing wrong with fasting twice a week, the Pharisees often did this to make a good appearance, to, to look good to the people, to create a good image for themselves. But remember, the law really only required one fast a year. And so when Jesus is approached with this question, why don't you and your disciples fast, it's important to note that Jesus was not breaking the Old Testament law. He was not breaking the Old Testament law by not fasting twice a week. He he just wasn't fitting into their system. But people noticed that John the Baptist's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting frequently, and they noticed that Jesus and his disciples were not fasting frequently, and so they approached Jesus with a question. And it is the question of why are you not fitting into the system? Why are you not fitting into the system? Why are you and your disciples different? This was often a question while Jesus was here on earth that people asked, why are you and your disciples different? And it should still be a question people ask today of Jesus' disciples. Why are you different? Why are you not fitting into the system we created You see, the Pharisees and the religious leaders of that day, they had God's word. They had the Old Testament that we hold today. But what they had done is they had separated the words of God from the heart of God. And by doing so, they missed the purpose of the law. They missed it. Only Jesus could remedy this problem. Only Jesus, God, who is God in the flesh, fully God and fully man, could help humanity connect the words of God and the heart of God. And so that they could see that the purpose of the law, the purpose of the law is to show us the holiness of God. The purpose of the law is to expose to us our sinful nature. And the purpose of the law is then to lead us to the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. But apart from Christ, the people couldn't see it. They couldn't see it. All they saw was followers of Jesus not fitting into their system. And so they asked Jesus, why don't you fast twice a week like the Pharisees? And Jesus answers them with a couple of parables. Look, verse 19. And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. To answer the question of why Jesus' disciples are not fasting, why are they not fitting into the religious system of the day, he first answers it essentially by saying, his presence changes everything. When Jesus shows up, everything changes he says, can a wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? Now, weddings in Israel were different than how many times we celebrate them today. So nowadays, usually here in our culture, if you go to a wedding, it's usually a, a ceremony that's 30 minutes to about an hour. And then afterwards, you go to a reception that's, you know, two to three hours, something like that. You celebrate the marriage and, and the wedding. Weddings in Israel are different, okay? A wedding feast in Israel usually lasted for a week, seven days. It is a week-long party, okay? It is a week of eating good food and, and drinking good drink and celebrating the marriage all together. No one is fasting during that week of a wedding celebration, except for maybe the bride's father if he's concerned about the cost or something like that, okay? But otherwise, no one's, and everyone knew no one's fasting during a wedding celebration, okay? And then here's a big point that Jesus makes. Notice that Jesus compares himself to the groom in this illustration. This is significant. This is significant. The Old Testament never refers to the Messiah as being the bridegroom. The Old Testament, however, does refer to God Himself being the groom and the people of God being the bride. And so not only was Jesus saying, Yes, I am the Messiah, the Christ. But I am God in the flesh. God is our Messiah. God himself is the Christ that we've been waiting for. Hear these words from Hosea chapter 2. Speaking about God being being the groom. Hosea 2 verse 16. And in that day declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. And no longer will you call me my Baal. Verse 19. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice. In steadfast love and in mercy, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. And you shall know the Lord. For Jesus to speak of himself as being the bridegroom, it was significant. Because not only has he been declared the Messiah, the Christ, the Rescuer, the Savior... But he is claiming, like he does over and over, to be God himself. He is God in the flesh. God alone is the husband of his people. And Jesus is saying, look, the groom is here. The groom is here. And when the groom is here, you celebrate. You don't fast. It's not time for fasting and grieving and mourning. God himself has come to earth, and his presence changes everything. So yes, Jesus' disciples don't fit the religious system of the day because the long-awaited groom has come for his bride. Jesus also says, though, that there will be a day when he is taken away from his people and they will fast. While Jesus was here on earth, it called for celebration, not fasting. And when Jesus returns to fully establish his kingdom, it will call for celebration, not fasting. But there is now this time in between where it is good for the people of God to fast. Now, this isn't the main point of the passage, and so we're not going to spend a lot of time talking about the concept of fasting, but let's real quickly uh, spend a few minutes uh, about fasting, okay? I'm gonna ask the question should Christians fast? Should Christians fast? Now, there is certainly no command in Scripture that commands that Christians have to fast. And so the answer to the question, do Christians have to fast? The answer is no. But should we? Should we? And I would say yes. Jesus, in the passage and others, almost assumes that we would fast. And we see then in the book of Acts, the early church, before making big decisions or installing elders, we see them spend time fasting and praying. And then throughout church history and reading Christian biographies, you will find that the heroes of the faith, so to speak, are people that spend time fasting and praying. And although we mainly talk about fasting when we talk about fasting from food, There also is many, many other things that it would be healthy for us to fast from, okay? The main purpose of fasting, the main purpose of fasting is to take our eyes off of creation and to put them on our Creator. Okay, so whether you fast from food or technology or social media or, or uh, TV or, or whatever you're going to fast from, the main purpose of fasting is to take our eyes off of creation and to put them on our Creator. And fasting for the Christian, it is not an obligation. It's not something you have to do. It's not, you're not, you know, obligated to do it, but it is, it is an invitation It is an invitation to take our eyes off of creation and to put them on our Creator. Because here's the problem. Most of our lives, most of our time is spent just being so enamored with creation that we lose sight of our Creator. And so fasting is an invitation to take our eyes off of creation, put them on Creator, and you just watch the clarity that that will provide in your life. This is a beautiful habit of grace that you should consider incorporating into your life. We live in a time where we are in between Jesus' time here on earth. He was here 2,000 years ago, and we know that he will return one day. And so we live in the tension of this kingdom that is already here. It's already broken through, but it is not yet fully realized. And living in this time, living in this tension... I would propose that it would be healthy for us to feast well and to fast well. Okay? To feast well and to fast well. Here's what I mean. When we feast, when we feast, we celebrate that the kingdom is here. The kingdom has broken through, and so we should feast. Jesus, God in the flesh, came to earth. And he defeated Satan's sin and death, and he's now ruling, reigning, and restoring all things. The good, true king is on his throne, and so we should feast well. We should celebrate together that Jesus is king, Jesus is on the throne. So have people over and prepare good food and enjoy good food and good drink together. We should feast well, celebrate that Jesus is king. But here's the problem when all we do is feast, We don't feast well. When all we do is feast, which is what we're prone to do here in America, when all we do is feast, we don't feast well. What happens when all we do is feast is we are tempted to then start worshiping the food rather than the giver of that food. When all we do is feast, we focus on creation more than creator. We focus more on our kingdom here and now than we do on Jesus' kingdom to come. And so I would encourage you, we must also fast well. If you want to feast well, you're probably going to need to be able to fast well. Because when we fast, we take our eyes off of creation and we put them on Creator. When we fast, we remember that Jesus' kingdom is here. But it's not yet fully established and so we are longing for it. When we fast, we hunger and thirst for the day when Jesus will return and make everything right. And so when we fast, we remember that that day is not yet here, but we are homesick for it. We are homesick for it. But because of our full bellies, we are often not homesick for God. We don't long for the kingdom to be fully realized because our bellies tell us it's already here. However, if our lives have a rhythm of incorporating this habit of grace, of fasting, you watch just the clarity that God will bring to us as a church and in your life when we have seasons that we fast and we pray. So church, may we be a people that fast well and feast well, okay? So back to the question, back to the passage, the question that people ask Jesus, Jesus, why are you not fitting into our religious system? He says, hey, while I'm here, my presence changes everything. It's time to celebrate. It's time to feast, not fast. He goes on to answer them, uh, answer them with another parable. Look, verse 21. Mark 2, verse 21. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old and a worse tear is made and no one puts new wine into old wine skins if he does the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed and so are the skins but new wine is for fresh wine skins Okay at first read you might be thinking what in the world is he talking about <laughs> And if you thought that, you are not alone. You can take just a big sigh like everyone else wasn't just, oh, I'm tracking with that, right? Okay, you're not alone. It's it's not that clear right away to many of us, okay? But let's break down these couple illustrations and then we'll view them as a whole. Remember, Jesus is answering a question that is being asked of him. Okay, first illustration. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Okay, I think many of us can get our minds around this, okay? You know how you go to buy new clothing, and you buy a shirt that is initially like at mid-thigh. Uh, you put it in the, the washer and the dryer. You pull it out, and it's now at your belly button, right? Okay, you've experienced this, all right? that's really frustrating. It's the only time that I find myself actually talking to my clothing, okay? Like, like really? Really? shirt. You're gonna in the store make it look like you know you're an extra large and you're actually like a youth medium, you know, after I wash you once. Like, come on, clothing. Come on, clothing. Now, it's encouraging, and we can assume that Jesus, from this illustration, that even people back in Bible times had that same problem. Jesus probably had that same frustration. And so when that happens to you, you can remember that we have a sympathetic high priest who has endured this as well, and he was without sin, and he understands what you are going through, okay? And so Jesus is is trying to use an illustration that everyone can relate with, okay? Okay. All right, he's using these illustrations so we can try to understand the bigger point of how he's going to answer this question. You wouldn't take a new piece of cloth, a new piece of cloth, and put it on an old garment or an old piece of cloth. Because then when you washed it, right, the, the new piece would shrink and it would pull and tear from the old garment. Okay, you guys can get, picture this. You got your mind around it. Okay, next illustration. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Okay. Back in Bible times, they would use goat skins as containers for wine. Now, probably not the goats that were really well caffeinated in Ethiopia because they would be hard to catch, all right? We can assume probably some non-caffeinated goats they would find, they would skin, and they would use the skin as containers for wine. And the reason that the skin was so good for, as a container for wine is because it was elastic, it would stretch. And so as the wine would ferment and the gases would expand, the skin could stretch with it and it would be able to hold the wine. But if you had an old wineskin that had already been stretched, the elasticity had already been, you know, uh, put to its breaking point, everyone knew that you didn't put new wine into an old wineskin because the elasticity was gone and it would burst, it would explode, it would break, and you would lose the wine. Okay, Jesus with these illustrations is saying that he did not come to patch up or fix the old system. He was saying that he would not fit into the religious system they had established, but in order for them to receive him, they would need new wineskins. They would need new hearts, and their filthy rags they called clothing didn't just need patched up, but they needed new clothing altogether. They needed to be clothed, clothed with Jesus' righteousness. And so most simply put, if we want to break it down to the most simple form, the new wine is Jesus. The new wine is Jesus. The new wine is Jesus and the gospel he proclaimed and what he came to do and teach And what he came to do and teach just because it needed, and it needed new wineskins to hold it, right? Now, just because it needed new wineskins to hold it doesn't mean that he was disregarding the law, doesn't mean he was disregarding the Old Testament. He was actually fulfilling it. He was fulfilling it. Matthew 5, 17, Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them, to fulfill them. But it wasn't going to fit into the religious systems and traditions of the Pharisees. The the traditions the Pharisees had put into place wasn't going to be able to hold this new good wine. And as a result, We see the Pharisees' minds are just bursting. They're exploding. They can't handle what Jesus is doing and teaching. I mean, next week we're going to look at the Sabbath and they're going to be like, hey, Jesus, you're not following our rules about the Sabbath. Jesus is like, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. And they're like, right? I mean, like, they can't handle that. What? You're Lord of the Sabbath? That is old wineskins trying to handle new wine, and you see their minds just exploding. They can't handle it. It's too good. It's too sweet. They They don't know how to handle that good news. Jesus is not fitting into their systems, and therefore they could not and they did not receive him. Jesus was not fitting into their systems, and therefore they could not and did not receive him. Which, by the way, that is an application point for us. That Jesus doesn't fit into the systems and traditions we make either. Many times we just want to add Jesus into our lives, right? We want to live life the way we want to live, but then we want to add, we'll make a little bit of room for Jesus. Let's just add him in, sprinkle him in on top a little bit, right? I mean, for example, we have a plan or we have goals and a vision for our career, Okay, let's think about your, your career, your vacation, or your vocation, not your vacation, Hopefully, in your vocation, you get some vacation, okay? Uh, but think about your vo- vocation. Many times, you do what you want to do. You have a career, a goal in mind, something that you are shooting for, working for, and then you'll kind of sprinkle Jesus in. Oh, like, Jesus, please, please bless this. Please help me with my boss. Please help me with this presentation. But essentially, you're doing what you want to do, and let's add Jesus in at the end. Or maybe in marriage or in dating, uh, we find someone we want to be with who we think will be a great match for us. And so we date, we get engaged, we get married. Oh yeah, Jesus, will you please help? Will you please bless this? We go to Jesus when things get rocky or we get in trouble. Or maybe with our money, we have certain goals of how much money we want to earn, how much money we want to save. How much, how much we want to spend on a house or a car. And then we kind of add Jesus in. Oh yeah, Jesus, please help this be enough money for what I want to do. Church, Jesus is not an add-on to your life. He's not a patch for your life. And he's not a supplement to your life. Jesus is your life. Amen. Jesus is your life. Colossians 3, 4 says, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. When Christ, who is your life, appears. He's not an add-on to your life. He is your life. He's not a patch for your life to patch you up, fix you up. He is your life. And he doesn't supplement your life. He is your life. And when Christ is your life, his presence changes everything. Your career then is not viewed as what I want to do, but it, it is instead. It's Jesus, what do you want me to do? Christ is my life. How does he want me to use my gifts and my talents and my abilities for his glory? How does he want me to use my work and my vocation to advance his mission When Christ is your life, your marriage then is not viewed as just what you want to get out of marriage. But when Christ is your life, you view your marriage as, how is Christ making me more like him in this marriage? How is my marriage pointing to Christ? How is my marriage advancing his mission and giving him glory? When Christ is your life, your money is no longer your money. When Christ is your life, you view your money as how can I bring God glory through the money that he has entrusted to me? How can I leverage my resources for the kingdom and the advancement of the gospel? He's not an add-on to your life. And you don't just make some room for him in your life. He is your life. He is your life. But when Jesus is just an add-on, when he just, you're just adding him on to the systems and traditions you already have in place, you miss out on the goodness and the sweetness of this new wine that Jesus offers. The Pharisees had their system set, and they tried to make Jesus an add-on or a patch to it. Like, how is what he's doing going to fit into our system? And because they did that, they missed they missed the unbelievably surprising good grace that God was providing that he had promised since the fall. The religious leaders in Jesus' day couldn't handle this grace. They couldn't receive it. It was new wine. It was too good. It was too sweet. It was expanding too quickly. And it didn't fit into the systems and traditions they had put into place. And so they couldn't receive it. And sadly, they still can't. This is why the grace that Jesus offers is so difficult to receive. It's so difficult to receive because in our natural state, we don't want grace. In our natural state, we don't want grace. I mean, be honest, we don't want undeserved favor. We want to work for favor. We want to deserve favor. We want to earn our righteousness with God. And this is why the gospel is so difficult to receive, because it goes against the system that humanity has put into place that says you have to work for your righteousness. Ben Ben Shapiro, many of you have probably heard of him. He's an author. He speaks a lot about politics. Uh, We won't get into politics this morning, or probably ever, okay? Uh, But he is also an Orthodox Jew, all right? He's an Orthodox Jew, and he says things straightforward and logical. And in an interview, asking him why he wasn't a Christian, he said he couldn't accept the idea of grace and that he preferred a workspace system. I mean, I can appreciate he's at least just going to say it how it is, right? He's saying it how it is. I can't handle the idea of grace, and I prefer a workspace system. Now, to us, this is like, what? What? You prefer a works-based system, but that is the system humanity has put into place. Look at every false religion and cult, and you will find two things they have in common. One is they deny the deity of Christ, and two, they prefer a works-based system. Every false religion and cult, go look at them. They deny the deity of Christ, and they prefer a works-based system system. And Paul, who was a Pharisee until an encounter with Jesus, says in Romans chapter 10, speaking about the Jews, he says this, Romans 10 verse 1, he says, "'Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge.'" For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. Following the law will not make us righteous. Hebrews 10 verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. It was a shadow of the good things to come. It can never make perfect those who draw near. Now, the law does serve a great purpose. It does. It teaches us about the holy nature and will of God. It reveals to us our sinful natures and how we have so fallen short of the glory of God. And then, church, we can praise God for the law because it does something else. It does something so glorious and so amazing and so magnificent that we are eternally grateful for it. It shows us our need for a Savior. It shows us our need for a savior, it pointed us to Jesus. And anything that points us to Jesus, we can say, praise God for it. I mean, I don't care if it's the good times, the bad times, the difficult times, the times you just can't imagine why that happened. Anything that points you to Jesus, we can say, praise God for that. But in our sin nature, this gospel of grace is impossible to receive. It's too good. It's too sweet. Old wineskins can't contain it. It's too great for our hearts of stone to respond to. In order to receive this new wine, you need to have new wineskins. We need to have new hearts. Hearts that can receive this gospel of grace. And without these new wineskins, we won't be able to receive the grace that God is pouring out onto his people. And there was prophecy that this would happen this way back in the Old Testament. There was prophecy that a new and better covenant was coming. The prophet Jeremiah in chapter 31 And I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel 36, verse 26. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God knew from eternity past that we would need new hearts to receive this new wine. That we would need regenerated hearts to receive this gospel of grace. God knew that we would need responsive hearts to welcome in Christ. And this isn't a new concept that Jesus introduced in Mark. It was always the plan that God was providentially unfolding. Even way back in Deuteronomy 30 verse 6, it says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart. And the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. The theological concept of regeneration is when God removes our old sinful nature and he replaces it, gives us new hearts and new natures that can now respond to God. And it is only when we have these new hearts that we have the ability to receive Christ and his righteousness. And it is in this new covenant that God forgives our disobedience through the sacrificial death of Christ. And he enables our obedience by giving us new hearts and filling us with his spirit. God forgives our disobedience and enables our obedience. And as the spirit sanctifies and works on us, We more and more then delight in the law of God, thereby fulfilling the righteousness of the law. And as the Spirit sanctifies us, we grow in our faith and our enjoyment of grace that God has poured out onto us. In concluding this morning, I recently I recently heard a pastor tell a story about a young man who had been attending his church. And this young man uh, was Jewish. And had grown up practicing all the rituals and customs and observed all the different feasts and festivals uh, that a Jewish person observes. But he had been coming to this pastor's church because he was intrigued by the preaching. He wanted to hear more about Jesus and he wanted to hear God's word uh, preached more. And at the end of the services, he would always leave before they took communion or the Lord's Supper. He wasn't a Christian, so he didn't want to stick around for the Lord's Supper. He just would always leave right after the preaching. But one Sunday, he walked up to the pastor and says, Pastor, this past Thursday, as I was listening to the sermon and reading the Bible, he said, I became a Christian. I put my faith in Christ. And he said, Pastor, today I stayed and I took my first communion for the first time. And he said, when the first time that I took communion, I held the bread and the cup in my hands. And when I held the bread and the wine in my hands, he said, I saw all the feasts and all the holy days in my hands. He said, I finally understood what the feast and the festivals and the prophets and the law and all the Old Testament, I finally understood what they were pointing to. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, the prophets, the feasts, the festivals, and all the promises of God. The grace of God has always been being extended, but it was fully revealed and manifested in Jesus Christ. And this beautiful, surprising grace is offered to us to be received and to be enjoyed by no effort of our own, but only through faith. Church, we praise God this morning that he has given us new hearts that can receive and believe this unbelievably good news. Let's pray. God, this is good news. And God, many times... Many times, even as believers who are following you, we celebrate your grace, and yet we always want to default back into working for your favor. God, I ask that you would give us rest from our work. Help us rest in you, rest in your grace, that you have paid it all, God, And that we are not saved, God, by our good works, but we are saved for good works. And so, God, I ask that we would be a people as we start to just continue to fully embrace your grace and to enjoy your gospel, that it would empower us to go and proclaim your kingdom to the people, that it would empower us to go serve and love our neighbors, that it would empower us, God, to go And love people well like you have loved us. So God, would you move and work and transform our hearts through the word that has been preached. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.